Hello, thanks for tuning in to this week's Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday podcast. We are looking back at a a busy-ish weekend of EFL football, and it's a two-parter because last week we welcomed Jay Sosick, Blades Analytic, to you and me. He came on the podcast, that went down really well, so thank you for giving such positive feedback there. Uh, We're going to do the same this week with another expert and another friend of the pod, Kieran Maguire football finance lecturer and expert and podcaster and now author of a book called Price of Football. We've got 20 minutes with Kieran at the end of this podcast. For anyone who has seen a lot of chat about Derby and Sheffield Wednesday and Stadia and the EFL but hasn't quite got their head around it yet, Kieran is providing all the insight there. And George, it's great to be back on the pod with you. And it was an exciting weekend uh, for you personally and for the pod because you were on BBC Radio 5 Live's Sports Report hosted by Mark Chapman. I mean, this is a a big coup for the pod. How was it? Yeah, it was great fun. Really excited to be doing stuff with uh, 5 Live, hopefully for the rest of the season. Um, You or I should be involved um, in their coverage about Saturday's EFL fixtures. I was at Hillsborough um, to watch a game that probably promised uh, to be a decent game, but no one could really have expected. Blackburn to run out 5-0 winners. Um, so I was there in the, in the gantry doing the pre-match roundup. And then after the game, we kind of chatted through some of the big stories from the three o'clock kickoffs um, and saw Nancy Frostick, who yeah. is the Athletics Sheffield Wednesday writer. I think we're going to be speaking about her piece about this game fairly soon as well so it was good to be involved in the in the media area and uh, yeah looking forward to, to continuing that relationship I've got forward. this image of you really working that press room pressing the flesh saying hi introducing yourself hi George Alec BBC Radio 5 Live uh, thanks nice to meet you um, it was a remarkable day for the Blackburn fans in the away end a 5-0 win against Sheffield Wednesday now before we get into the game the big news really of today is there's another podcast and it's me and it's you but it's not not the top 20 podcast it's going up going down and it's a new podcast by the athletic now regular listeners to the pod will know that the athletic and ourselves have been partnered since they launched at the beginning of this season and all through the season we've wanted to be a a bigger part of their efl coverage and now they've given us our own pod very exciting. And the first one, George, out later on this week. It's going to be a second half of the week pod, Thursdays. Yeah, and very different as well, important to say. I mean, if you, if you like what we've done on Not The Top 20, I think you're going to like this as well. But if you don't like what we've done before, hopefully there's going to be a little bit of something for you in the new podcast because, um, yeah, it's not going to be exactly the same of Ali and I just sitting down, chatting through things. There's going to be some special features and, uh, and as you say, because it's a Thursday rather than a Monday, it gives us an opportunity to be looking forward rather than just the retrospective stuff that we normally do. Yeah, and, and we should also mention that the betting show will be unaffected. We will be continuing with the betting show. Uh, but I don't think there's any EFL podcast or video uh, platform product that really previews the weekend. Of course, on the betting show, we are looking ahead at that weekend's slate of fixtures. But we are really doing so with, with gambling in mind, with betting in mind. And so it's uh, it's not quite the same. And we're not being, I suppose, because we are just making our selections that we think are the best bets. It's not necessarily a uh, an entirely level uh, 
uh, preview. But on this podcast, we are going to be talking through the best games of the weekend across all three divisions, why we think they're the best games. We're going to be focusing a little closer on individuals and team tactics, uh, interesting managers. Uh, and then one feature that I'm most excited about is EFL Rewind, which will be a, a look back uh, one each week at basically the craziest things that have ever happened in the EFL. And we have no little uh, option there in terms of, of weekly stories. So it's probably worth just as an idea, given it's three days before the first one. If there are any EFL Rewind stories that you think that we should be looking at, mm. tweet us now um, and let us know what you think. Because we've got a, li- a short list or a bit of a long list of ones that we can do. But no one knows these little funny stories better than the people who are involved in them at their own club. So let us know. Exactly. So that is going to be the Going Up, Going Down podcast. First episode out on Thursday. You can listen to it on all podcast platforms and it's not behind a paywall. So please do give us a go on Thursday. Tell us what you think. All feedback will be really welcome as we get this new podcast off the ground and make it three Not The Top 20 uh, related pods per week. Really exciting. George, let's get into the games. Let's start with the one you were at. Sheffield Wednesday nil, Blackburn five. Uh, quite a lot of fuming Wednesday fans. Would it be? Uh, would they be angry to hear me say, chill out, guys, you had a red card in the first half, a fairly questionable red card at that, and that's really the, the reason behind this capitulation? There seem to be some question marks about the player's application here. I'm sure that there'll be people at Sheffield Wednesday who are telling themselves that you know it's not worth getting too downbeat about this because of the circumstances around the match. Uh, as you mentioned, Massimo Luongo was sent off after, it must be said, the first goal um, for what Gary Monk has since said was 100% not a red. Uh, I think it's probably 70% not a red. Um, you know, he's he's definitely late. Uh, there's no denying the fact it's a foul. It wasn't, you know, the stamping motion wasn't necessarily there, but he still catches uh, Travis uh, on the shin with his studs kind of facing the leg. So by no means a great tackle. And then the second goal was one of those kind of freak goals that you often see um, with Dawson tipping the ball onto the post and rebounding, hitting his head and going in. Uh, so a couple of circumstantial issues, I guess, with with with, uh, with, the, with the scoreline maybe. But... Having said that, Blackburn were comfortably the better team um, in the first 20 minutes before the Holtby's opener and before the red card. Uh, and it felt like the game was going in there kind of, they were in the ascendancy anyway. Mm. So you can't, if you're Gary Monk, if you're a Sheffield Wednesday fan, if you're a player, you cannot sit there and say everything is fine. You know, we were down to 10 men early, so obviously we're going to lose the game because they were really, really poor. I saw nothing at all from basically anyone on the pitch for Sheffield Wednesday that suggested um, they were a team who uh, could get into the playoffs. They, they came into the game in sixth position. Uh, they, they left it in 10th position after mm. the teams all around them, them won their fixtures. Uh, and you, you look at their form as a whole, you know, all the talk before this game was how they'd won back-to-back matches. They won that game against Leeds. They beat beaten Brighton away in the FA Cup. The FA Cup result, you know, as with all cup wins, brilliant, but at the end of the day, you know, it's it's not something you can really chart alongside league form. The win against Leeds was was obviously brilliant, um, even if Leeds had their chances. But their last three games at home now have been a 2-1 defeat against Cardiff, a 1-0 defeat against Hull, and now a 5-0 defeat against Blackburn. Um, we've spoken in the past about Gary Monk and how his, you know, if you're going to look at managers rather than, than teams in terms of trends, Monk follows a pretty similar trend consistently where he gets teams very, very effective early on 
but there is consistently a drop away in terms of performances. And at the moment, in the league at least, a 2-0, I mean, calling it a smash and grab is a bit harsh, but it, but it was a game where they kind of rode their luck a bit and took their chances late on. Except for that, they're in some woeful, woeful form. And there was very, you know, being there, there was very little in, in way of encouragement at all. And when I spoke to athletic writer, as I mentioned, Nancy Frostick after the game, she kind of said she wasn't really sure how she was going to kind of conduct the inquest into such a poor performance. But she's written a piece um, that you can read on the app or, or online, uh, theathletic.co.uk, called An Uncanny Ability to Self-Destruct, More Woe at Home and Another Sluggish Start on a Horrible Day for Wednesday. And in that... I mean, <laughs> Sums it, it up pretty it's well. A, it's a, Yeah, you don't really need... Well, no, you should read the piece, I should say. Um, but the, the headline does kind of sum up the day. And it touches on what I was just saying about Monk's sides and their constant, you know, this trend about them falling away and, and you know, Nancy says Wednesday's uncanny ability to self-destruct because of their failure to adequately do the basics has become increasingly frustrating issue for Monk and that's no surprise because this isn't the first time this has happened and Monk himself says in the piece we seem to self-inflict that negative and that setback and that's and that's a disappointing thing if a team comes and then totally outplays you and totally outclasses you you can live with that but when it's self-inflicted like we have done it makes it makes that much harder to take the games we've lost this season, I can't think of one that hasn't been self-inflicted and that's something that needs to be worked on. And so that suggests that Monk himself is approaching this as being totally their fault. He's not necessarily giving Blackburn too much credit for for you know imparting their dominance in the game, even if it was, it was against 10 men. And I think we can probably expect, judging from those quotes from Monk and judging by the fact that he's basically saying that every single performance so far this season that's been poor has been their fault. Um, how you try and rectify those issues is much harder where than if you just ha- put your hands up and you say, fair enough, we were beaten by the better team. Great reporting from Nancy Frostick, who covers Sheffield Wednesday for The Athletic. Uh, if you haven't signed up to The Athletic, but you'd like to give it a go, there's so much good stuff on there, as well as our new podcast dropping at the end of this week. Give it a go with a seven-day free trial and then 50% off uh, the annual subscription fee if you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 that is where you can find the aforementioned uh, free trial and the uh, and the and the 50% discount as well one thing that I, I want to say which I didn't manage to say on, on the radio which annoyed me afterwards because all the talk here is is you know, understandably about Sheffield Wednesday and their capitulation but massive credit to Tony Mowbray massive credit for Blackburn as well because they came here and they prevented Sheffield Wednesday from playing early on. They took the lead deservedly. They were really impressive. They're, you know, they're going to be without Bradley Dack for the rest of the season, but there was enough in there, enough quality in that final third to suggest they're going to be absolutely fine. Downing and Travis is a really good midfield duo. Downing was brilliant in that kind of withdrawn midfield role, uh, really running the show. He's still got that wonderful left foot and such a good eye for a pass. And Travis doing the running alongside him. Holtby with two goals in that 10 role. Gallagher and Armstrong kind of swapping effectively, one of them out wide, one of them playing up top, and then Joe Rothwell as ever full of running. So um, I'm really positive about Blackburn. Uh, obviously, you know, the game fell into their lap a little bit, um, playing against 10 men for 70 minutes when already one nil ahead, but, uh, but credit where credit's due. I love it when players, established players who are known for playing in a certain position reinvent themselves as older veteran players Stuart Downing appears to have done exactly that. And we, we haven't really spoken about him much this season, as you've alluded to there. 
But you, you messaged me about him on Saturday. You were blown away by the performance that he put in, as you say, in like a deep-lying playmaker role, really. Uh, he had the most touches in the match, obviously aided by Sheffield Wednesday having 10 men. One of those men, Barry Bannon, when he plays in central midfield, he hasn't necessarily got the legs to to put too much pressure on the opposition midfielders anyway, and that is something of a knock on him, as good as his left foot is at creating. So Downing really ran the show, and <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. It was just after you had messaged me about him, I saw Elliot Bennett, his teammate, tweeting uh, that Stuart Downing could hit a mosquito's nipple from 60 yards. And as phrases go, that was right up there for me. So um, great day out for Blackburn. Here's a, a window into our past for the listeners. We were talking earlier, George, about how it was quite funny that you had seen Blackburn win their, first, their, their biggest away win in about 50 years because both of us, both George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, the first ever teams that we had a real hankering for when we were in the mid-90s, just, just out of nappies, was uh, Blackburn Rovers. Because, well, certainly from my point of view, it was because I had a sticker of Stuart Ripley and a sticker of Alan Shearer. Well, mine was, yeah, mine was very Shearer-driven. I'm, Shearer? Know, I'm, I'm a, a, a very little bit older than you, just kind of, what is it, like, uh, nearly two years. 18 months. 18 months. So I was, when Blackburn won the league, I was, I think, five or six. And um, so Shearer banging in goals was, was pretty important. I have a feeling you and I aren't the only people kind of in their late 20s, early 30s who supported Blackburn and then moved on to someone else <laughs> um, as soon as my dad took me to an Oxford game when I was about six years old. Let's move on. There's plenty of other notable results across the EFL that we need to whiz through. Uh, the early game on Saturday was between QPR and Leeds at Loftus Road and QPR beat Leeds uh, 1-0. Now, before we get into any analysis of the game, I would like to note that Nicky Wells's goal was given and it should not have been given. Wells handled the ball certainly once, potentially twice as well, uh, which was missed by the referee and the linesman. So uh, a bit of a, a lucky one, I suppose, for QPR to go one nil up. Uh, now, plenty happened after that goal, but I think it is important sometimes to flag up you know, if there's if there's some negativity towards Leeds' performance, uh, then at the very least we should caveat it with they were very unfortunate to go one nil down. I would like to give credit to QPR and Mark Warburton here. He talked after the game uh, about when you play Leeds, having to try and play forward, having to be quite brave in transition in order to to play through their press. And I think far be it for me to put Leeds' poor form down to this and this alone. But we are at the stage of the season where teams are playing them for the second time in the campaign with a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more experience about their style of play, which we bang on about so much as as it has elevated this squad uh, under Bielsa. I think we're starting to see that in the first half of the season, where teams' approach was mostly just camp out in your box and hope for the best, really, which did work for some teams, notably Swansea at Ellen Road. There's now a little bit more nuance to how teams are approaching these games and, and getting some joy. What was notable that QPR did really well, and thankfully they have the personnel for it, was how say Samuel and Eze were always showing for the ball, but also essentially dribbling through the press. Now, there was some good passing as well from the players behind them, but say Samuel completed seven out of seven dribbles. Eze completed six out of ten dribbles. And I think when you're playing against the, the organised press that Leeds have, where really, as much as you have pressure on the ball when you receive it, another issue is how 
all of your passing options tend to have quite intense pressure on them as well. If you can skip past your man initially, then the whole deck of cards really falls down because then a second defender has to come across uh, and, and sort of cover for the man who's been beaten and that opens up spaces elsewhere. So QPR doing well in that regard and a few other teams will have taken note. Uh, from a Leeds point of view, we spoke about Bamford on Sky on Friday night uh, being an issue, underperforming his XG to a massive extent compared to his championship rivals. Well, missing that one-on-one -on -one in the first half and missing a penalty, that's not going to help with either the underlying numbers or the reality, which is that he is really proving to be a bit of an issue for this lead side. How is it on Bamford Island at the moment? Uh, it's windy. It's windy. <laughs> but if you can't put up with the storm, then you don't deserve the sun. I think you don't. You I do think, not deserve the sun. I think he just needs a bit of help here. Um, Maybe some sun. It was. It was interesting. His reaction to the penalty save was one of a player who it almost feels is just used to the knocks now. Can you imagine what that must feel like? I mean, he just he just shrugged his shoulders and kind of jogged off, and you're thinking like this is. I mean, it's it's relentless for him to have to deal with with the setbacks, and you know it's his fault. It was a bad penalty. Um, you know, listening to Ivan Tony saying on the Quest highlight show, you know he should just smack it down the middle. And I think that it's that kind of conviction is so important. Don't you know that penalty is only going in if you send the keeper the wrong way, and he hasn't done anything to try and do that. It's not a very good penalty. It's not a very high percentage penalty. Um, and they, you know, he needs help. He, they need to bring someone in who can take some of the goal-scoring onus off him. I mean, Jack Harrison is is their kind of next biggest goal threat, and he's you know never going to be particularly prolific. Uh, it's bizarre to you know, it, it's ridiculous to have a team like Leeds, who've won so many games of football in the last eighteen months, who are currently sitting second in the table. Yet this is the performance, and this is the result that seems to completely define them. How many times have we seen this? I mean, in the first half, it was a fairly level game, I thought. In the second half, Leeds were just turning the screw. Mm. And we're comfortably the better team. And that's you know, no discredit to QPR whatsoever. But on the balance of play, at the very worst, Leeds should have drawn this game. You also incorporate into that the, the refereeing decision. Um, you know, quite clearly, Naki Wells' goal shouldn't have been uh, allowed. It hit both of his arms as far as, as I could see, mm. with the second one being fairly blatant. Um, but that's kind of neither here nor there when it comes down to the performance of Leeds themselves, who did enough to win the game, but yet again couldn't put the ball in the back of the net. And spoken loads about how Che Adams is, is obviously the, the the main target, but I really hope that they're not being stubborn. I really hope that there are there are contingency plans in place because we saw last season what happens if they don't get the man that they want. They seem to not bring in anyone, and that would be a real disaster because not only is it unfair on Bamford, but they have a massive chance here again. To, to get promoted and I'm not sure that if they don't do it this time I'm not sure that they're going to be able to get Marcelo Bielsa to stick around for another season so well yeah but you say that it's such an interesting moment with Bielsa now because there's this I think increasingly understandable conundrum of how do you how do you verbalize your thoughts and your emotions if you're a Leeds fan now this man came into your club with a completely different footballing culture and philosophy, implemented that almost immediately in the most intense and unusual way for English football, elevated this squad's base level performance to an absurd degree and got Leeds to inarguably being one of the top three teams in the championship. This is last season and clearly this season as well. So 
obviously you love Bielsa, you love his quirks, you love his idiosyncrasies, you love that he's your manager, he's done an amazing job, but... But then, you know, you, in the list you've just you've just given there and what you love about him, like most of those are just, you know, by the bys. Well, so you didn't let me finish. Okay. The whole point of my point okay. was that there's a but coming. Okay, yeah. What is the but? The but is that his stubbornness, which we knew about already, which we got to know last season in the same scenario where Leeds fans wanted reinforcements in January and Bielsa's own view of the transfer market does not align with what any English football fans really want their club to do in January. His his stubbornness with keeping players in their positions, his stubbornness in not bringing other players in to, to help with the workload or to spread the minutes or to rotate... Um, his stubbornness in many levels is also clearly in some ways holding them back. And that's where I think it's odd because on the one hand, you've got to recognise everything he's doing and how far how far do you go with your criticism of Bielsa? N- not very far because I, I think part of his personality and, and the stubbornness you talk about is, is a massive part in why they are where they are. Hence the conundrum. Yeah, I, I don't think it is really. I, I, I don't think there's much of an argument. I think you can criticise all you want about uh, in terms of the unwillingness to venture off his kind of 10 out of 10 ideals, but it's that level of perfectionism that is so important to why Leeds are as good as they are. But you just said, like, they've got to bring someone in. They've got to bring help in for Bamford. Yeah, and, and I it's think... It's mostly down to him that I they haven't they do, done yeah, that already. But they're, they're currently, in, you know, on the 20th of January. So let's see where we are. You know, there's no point criticising him now for not doing so. I think if we get to, you know, the 1st of Feb, and they haven't brought in a striker, and it's been pretty obvious that he has rejected the opportunity to do so, then then we'll see. But the, the flip side of it as well is that he had a striker in Eddie Nketiah, who presumably at the time of bringing him in, he did want. But we, we saw pretty quickly what happens to guys who he doesn't want involved in the squad. I mean, Jack Clark played 19 minutes of league football this season. Mm. Jack Clark was a player that Marcelo Bielsa knew very well when he brought him back. So it, it's... You know, very stubborn. Um, Leeds is one of Leeds' there's, problems. There's, there's no denying that he's stubborn, but the stubbornness itself isn't a negative. That's that's the important. I mean, it's, it's perfectionism. That's that's who he is. And the fact that Leeds are currently second in the league and we're having this conversation in the first place is down to that. Leeds have gone behind, or their opponent has scored first nine times in the league this season. From the point of going behind, uh, they've only got three draws and, and lost six of those nine games. On the flip side, West Brom, their current rivals for the title, uh, when, the op- when the opponent has scored first, which is 13 times, four more than Leeds, uh, five draws, six wins and two defeats only out of those 13. So while that is an unfair comparison, West Brom have got an unusually good record uh, in that regard. Uh, there's clearly that's another issue that Leeds have uh, and, and whether that's down to quality or mentality uh, I'm not entirely sure anyway West Brom haven't played as we record so we can't discuss their game against Stoke uh, Brentford drew with Huddersfield but there is a bit more pressure on Leeds their fans and West Brom of course as well because so many other fellow promotion hunters whatever you want to call them playoff hopefuls automatic promotion hopefuls Fulham beat Middlesbrough 1-0 Nottingham Forest beat Luton 3-1. Swansea beat Wigan 2-1. Millwall beat Reading 2-0. Bristol City beat Barnsley 1-0. And Preston beat Charlton 2-1. So, no pressure being felt by the cabal of teams pushing for the playoffs. Out of all of those results, George, which one would you like to talk about first? Preston beating Charlton 2-1. Great. Because they came into this game on a 
you know, horrific run of form. Not as bad as Charlton's, it must be said, who I think, you know, one win in 16 it is for them. Um, but you've got to go back to the 14th of December. Uh, an unconvincing 2-1 win at home to Luton was the last time that Preston picked up three points uh, in in the championship. And then they come into this game and within five minutes, a player who they had uh, released from his loan with the, with the club uh, just a couple of weeks prior scores for Charlton in, in Andre Green. Um which is fairly typical. And you're looking then at a side who, who, you know, who a few weeks ago when the automatic promotion places have been, you know, seen as, as pretty surefire uh, bet for, for the playoffs. And suddenly they're staring at a defeat against um, the out-of-form team in the league at home. And the way that they rallied and got over the line uh, was really impressive. I mean, a, a brilliant goal from Josh Harrop, something you can't really account for that kind of individual quality and um, picking up the ball and a nice bit of skill before firing it into the far far corner from about 30 yards and then you know I speak about the, the Andre Green situation with him being on loan there early in the season Charlton fans who enjoyed that wouldn't have enjoyed seeing their Wembley hero Patrick Bauer um, scoring the winner for, for Preston but just in terms of you know we, we know that victories and kind of the way that they're won can can change the course of a team's form and change their performances as well no surprise it tallied with the with the return of Daniel Johnson to the starting lineup, but it just feels like Preston, if they had lost this game, the, the, the difference to now would have been a hell of a lot more than just three points, um, because they needed to to show that they still retained the, the class and the ability to get past teams. Scott Sinclair had a had a fairly quiet debut, it must be said, um, but even so, uh, you know, even though they're the team of the ones you just listed there who who won on the weekend, even though they're the one who probably had the easiest match and are currently. Um, in the in the lowest position of ninth, I just feel like that win is going to be really important to them going forward. A couple of the others to touch on here. Uh, Lee Johnson really needed that win at home to Barnsley. It wasn't the most convincing, uh, but some of the things I've read about him and also about uh, Bristol City's ownership being lacking ambition uh, over the last few days and last few weeks, I have been very surprised at. Uh, I'm sure it's only a, a minority of Bristol City fans, but uh, I do think sometimes people uh, go a little bit far in in what they say and how they say things but that is passionate nature of football I suppose. Uh, Millwall beat Reading 2-0 since Gary Rowett took charge of his first game, George equal top on points with Brentford and Fulham and Fulham have played one more game than Millwall and Brentford so since Rowett took charge no one better. Uh, Eight wins in 15 league games which is incredible just eight wins in their previous 35 so um a fantastic managerial change and a huge tick in the box, I suppose, for Gary Rowett, who you've spoken about really needing to make sure this job was the right one and, and went well. And it seems like a perfect fit at the moment. Uh, Swansea beating Wigan 2-1 and the first goal was everything Swans fans were mm. excited about, everything they wanted to see. Conor Gallagher trying to give them a bit more thrust, a bit more of a goal threat in the centre of midfield, playing in Rianne Brewster. And I've said this a few times over the years, Normally about League One and League Two goals that you see on the highlights and you just think the movement's too quick and the skill is too good and the finish is too accurate for this level, if you know what I mean. And and this goal and Brewster's just as as a movement, the, the speed of his of his run, the power, the accuracy on the shot with his weaker foot, it, it was exceptionally exciting for such a young player. So that was definitely something to look out for. And then Ayu and Selena, some of the old guard uh, combining for the winner as well. Wigan, what to say really? There's a lot of 
hand-wringing going on amongst the fan base um, with regards to Paul Cook. Uh, it was another performance that wasn't too bad, uh, another game in which they went ahead and ultimately lost the game. So there's, there's no change in terms of the themes. Uh, Fulham and Forest as well. Uh, we watched that Fulham game in at Sky on Friday night. It's the third 1-0 win in four games for them. That There was a time, George, where we... We found it very difficult to believe that they could challenge for automatic promotion, but all of a sudden they're not that far off. Has anything changed in your, <laughs> in your view of them? Yeah, I think the arrival of, of Michael Hector is quite obviously going to be fairly important for the rest of their season. I think they're a much better defensive unit with him there. Um, and you have to say the whole back four played really well. I was impressed with, with Reem and Brian on the left-hand side and impressed with Hector and Adoy on the right. And that four just feels like it's got a bit of balance that maybe they lacked before. Uh, I was really impressed with Anthony Knockhart. Um, I think he put in the kind of performance that we were used to seeing him put in pretty much every week for Brighton uh, in their promotion season and the one before, um, but a performance that we just hadn't seen yet. Uh, I don't know if getting on the score sheet with a very simple finish after seven minutes gave him the boost of confidence that he needed, but take that goal out and he was still quite clearly the best player on the pitch. His decisions in the final third um, can often be his biggest shortfall uh, when he tries stuff that doesn't come off, but everything he tried came off. His inventiveness and his creativity were a joy to watch. His his running was brilliant as well. Uh, you know, he's someone who on his day have, will have the beating of pretty much any fullback in this division. And that's the player that Fulham thought they were getting. It's a shame it took until, you know, whatever it was, the, the 17th or 18th of January for them to see that player. But in the absence of, of Alexandra Mitrovic, interesting that Scott Parker didn't decide to play uh, Abu Bakar Kamara after his... Um, very impressive turn last time Mitrovic was out. The fact he wasn't on the bench suggests that it may have been a fitness issue either way. Um, but Knockhart stepped up to the plate in the way that he needed to do so. And well, and Bobby Reid was the man who played yeah, through the middle. and, and Played very well. A, it was not Mitrovic in its performance, but it was uh, very industrious. He created a lot of space for the likes of Knockhart. He dropped into midfield very deep at times. Mm. And I think in general, helped them to, to play a slightly more Fulham style uh, that, that we were used to their last uh, time that they were down in this division. Uh, there's been a lot of chat, I know, on the Fulhamish podcast about uh, the, the I suppose, the sort of football that you, you kind of have to play if Mitrovic is playing up front and whether that's always uh, bringing out the best in, in the other players in the team. This system looked pretty solid and, and they were good in possession. So a good win for Fulham and, and Forrest as well. I mean... They went 1-0 down to Luton, who absolutely deserved their lead in this game uh, on Sunday lunchtime. And uh, credit to Forrest for coming back. Uh, they they leaned on the individual brilliance of Joe Lolly. They were helped out by a, a goalkeeping error from Simon Sluger. Not the first time we've said that uh, about him or other Luton goalkeepers, to be fair, this season. Uh, and Lolly and Cash, I, I watched this game, I found myself wanting them to to play down the right even more. I, I feel like those two as an attacking duo down the right-hand side are about as good as it gets in this division. And I felt like they needed to find them a little more often. But then I think, and you saw this with Lolly's second goal, it, it's potentially a strategy to start their possession out on the left-hand side and then Watson with a couple of really good switches of play out to Lolly because actually he's very effective in space when he's running directly at his fullback. But... In more possession play, I think that's where Lolly's skills, I suppose, uh, are slightly more hidden. Uh, so it, it worked out really well, and, and credit to Lamucci for that. Shows what I know. Uh, a great individual performance from from Lolly, and I suppose with Forrest, look, 
we've got to be honest, we're not always that convinced by them, especially when the scores are level at nil-nil. They don't always look particularly convincing. Uh, it's partly down to the style of football that they play, the fact that they, they, they reject the notion that you need to have a lot of the ball, and that's absolutely fine. But they did go 1-0 down, and it was hard not to think, that's a poor start to this home game against one of the worst teams in the division. But uh, once they go ahead, they are very, very good. They are very good at seeing those games out. And... Uh, and that's, and that's impressive as they look to move up towards the automatic promotion places very much in the playoffs at the yeah. moment. I mean, I, just one thing on Luton as well, because before we move on from the game, um, is that I was impressed with them for the first half an hour, uh, which I know it doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things, but when you're a team like Luton who are bottom of the league, going away to a team who are pushing for promotion, um, to be the better team until you take the lead has some significance in itself because... It feels very Wigan as well. Well, it's, it's a case of, you know, with Luton, if you look at their recent results, especially on the road, um, you're kind of checking them for a pulse. And all I'm saying is that I saw, you know, a couple of heartbeats um, that suggest all isn't lost yet. I mean, it's going to be pretty tricky for them to get out of this mess, hoping that... I mean, they'll be hoping, not me, they'll be hoping that Derby um, have a points deduction for the, for the financial, you know, implications... Of their stadium deal, uh, because if not, they're currently you know four points off Stoke. Stoke with the game in hand as well. Then it's another four points up to Huddersfield. Um, but there were signs there that they could you know, get enough points against weaker opposition to, to mount something, um, even yep. if even if not over ninety minutes. More on that derby wrangling with the EFL in the last part of the podcast. After we discuss League One and League Two, our chat with Kieran Maguire. The last twenty minutes or so of the podcast. Derby did win this weekend. Uh, they won at home. They have the second best home record in the championship, 29 points from 15 home games and the fourth worst away record in the championship with eight points from 13 away games. So to, to a certain extent, they are this season's Wigan. And before we move on to League One, some stats courtesy of Peter Lerman on Twitter, Sheffield Wednesday fan who likes crunching the numbers. Uh, since 1998, the championship, after 28 matches, has never been as tight as it is now with that 10-point gap from 3rd to 14th. So it is exceptionally tight. Bad news, Peter says, for those outside the top 10. At this stage, after 28 games, no team outside the top 10 has been promoted in the last 21 championship seasons. At the top of League One, George Ellick is Rotherham United. 3-0 winners over Bristol City. The most dominant team in the division at the moment. Five wins in a row. And in Chidozi Ogbene, potentially the individual performance of the week in the EFL. Yeah, absolutely. Two very, very good assists. I mean, it was I've never seen two goals so similar in a game of football ever. Uh, let alone the fact that they were um, scored within, what was it, two or three minutes of each other. And he did not dissimilar things at the Kassam the other day against Oxford. It was, it was a delicate switch ball that started both of them as well, which is just, I mean, you, you don't often see uh, two wingers switching it like that. It's normally, um, you know, a, a, a centre midfielder coming wide or, or a fullback playing those pings. Um, but a delicate twice found Ogbené out wide within two minutes. Ogbené putting in brilliant balls for Carvacel. And Michael Smith to, to, to score. And it kind of got me thinking this game because Paul Warren spoke afterwards and said how he's told all of his squad that none of them will be leaving. Um, and it, it kind of dawned on me how impressive a job it is that Warren's doing. I mean, Ogbené 
is quite clearly a, a, you know a very special talent and someone who's going to play at a high level but I mean Adelican came in um, in the summer uh, sorry in, in, in this window in January just a couple of weeks ago Carver Sells someone who's struggled um, to really prove himself uh, as a as a goal scorer in the past. Michael Smith's been knocking around this level for a while. Crooks has played most of his football at a lower level. These aren't guys, I mean, despite the fact they came down from the championship last season, the guys mm. who are impressing aren't people who are necessarily you'd think would be attractive propositions for teams higher up the pyramid. So for Ward himself to have turned this team into such a winning machine is really, really impressive. And, you know, he's a guy who, who dealt with a lot of criticism early on in the season. I think there's a fair few Rotherham fans uh, even if they wouldn't admit it now, who probably wanted to see the back of him at the end of at the end of August, beginning of September. Um, of all the teams that came down last season, they were not the one that were fancied to be in this position come January. So massive credit to them. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that they are. We've seen in the past there are some teams in League One, you know, last season being with Luton and and, and Barnsley. There are some teams who are just a different level. I don't think they are that. I think they will be dropping points this season, and they'll be part of a of a championship. Uh, title, so a League One title race rather than being clear at the top. But at the moment, they are um, they're the best team in the league, and, and they sit in their rightful position at the top of the table. Yeah, another one to add to your list is Michael Ehikwe playing centre back. Who I mean, Rotherham fans are, are saying this guy is the absolute real deal, uh, absolute rock at the back for them. And and just to add to your list, he really played the he started his career um, really with Tranmere having had a loan at, at Cheltenham from Wolves where he came through the academy, but two years in the conference with Tranmere uh, and then this, this move to Rotherham where he's been for the last three seasons or so. So really impressive stuff. Every leader so far in League One has had a wobble and Rotherham will be looking at their next four games. Peterborough away, Ipswich and Burton at home and Lincoln away. All teams in the top half and even the lowest team there, Lincoln, uh, playing them away at the moment is a bit of a nightmare. They've won five in a row. So... Big test coming up over the next month or so for Rotherham. Uh, and then below them, a little bit like that group of teams we spoke about earlier in the championship, there were a lot of teams who are in and around. Well, everyone's in and around in this division at the moment. There's a lot of teams around the playoff places who got narrow wins. So uh, as always, I'm just going to read a list of results out to you and you can tell me which one stands out the most. We had Wickham 2, Rochdale 1. They really needed that one. We had Ipswich beating Tranmere 2-1. We had Coventry beating Donny away from home. Uh, and we had Sunderland beating MK Dons 1-0 away. And Pompey beating Bolton. Can we talk about all of them? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, well, I mean, I think with Wickham, it's very similar to what I was saying about Preston earlier. That just feels like a win that's more than three points. Um, to be 1-0 down at home against a struggling team, it's basically a carbon coffee. You could repeat what I said about Preston and sub in Preston for Wickham. And, you know, you've got my analysis there. Um, for Ipswich... A similar story, you know, they, they after a couple of good performances on the back of a rut to go behind and, and to get the wins really important. Um, Portsmouth, a, a big three points for them because it feels like if you play Bolton and you don't get three points, you're, you're basically dropping uh, at least two, really. Um, so, yeah, important, I guess. Coventry is the best one, isn't it? I'm getting there. I was going to say <laughs> Sunderland maintaining their good form. Um, not quite as, you know... Needed a needed yeah, a screamer. Needed a screamer, exactly. Some good saves though from the MK Don's keeper, yeah. it must be said. I'd but, say it was a, I'd say it was a tight game that Sunderland edged, edged exactly, but didn't dominate. Exactly. So for, I think Coventry, as you say, is the one. Um I really, really enjoyed Mark Robbins's interview afterwards where he says that, you know, they're taking it one step at a time, they're not getting carried away. But it's a huge, huge three points. <laughs> I think he'd he maybe let the mask slip a little bit there. But um really, really impressive. And there's just you kind of run out of 
nice things to say about this commentary side um, because there is, you know, we talk about how Rotherham, it's maybe unfashionable talent. There is so much talent in this commentary team, whether it's Walsh, whether it's Kelly, whether it's Shipley, whether it's O'Hare. There are players in this side who you can see going very, very far in the game. And the return of Godden, um, who got the assist for the goal for, for Shipley's goal as well, the return of Godden really has just been that missing part of the jigsaw, if there was one, because they were pretty good anyway. Mm. Um, and to, you know, they came into a Doncaster side who are, you know, on the back of a really good run of form, who've beaten some decent teams recently and uh, and they, they shut the game down and, um, you know, it wasn't their best performance of the season, but in terms of big three points and big wins, uh, really, really good. Shout out Southend United. Their first win under Sol Campbell. I think it was their first win since September. Uh, they beat Accrington away from home. It wasn't necessarily their 2-1 win. Uh, a, a great reflection on the balance of play. Accrington will point to some wasteful finishing, uh, certainly by Colby Bishop. But I've no doubt that in Southend's miserable run of form, uh, there have been games, especially in the last month or two, where they've actually drawn five of their last seven. There have probably been games where they will feel they deserve to win and they didn't pick up all three points. So I will absolutely allow them to celebrate this game, even if uh, they didn't necessarily dominate proceedings. Uh, they're, they're, they're in quite a weird position, Southend, aren't they? I mean, Simon Cox who we've always spoken about as some, something of a talisman for them. He's gone to the A-League, to Australia. Lucky him. Exactly. And it, it does feel a little bit like with his departure, uh, with the emergence of some of the young talent like Kelman and Hutchinson, who've been getting quite a lot of minutes, there is a an acceptance that they need to, A, start shifting some of the wage bill and, B, maybe start thinking ahead to, to being in League Two next year. But, I mean, am I being... Am I being harsh to suggest that despite this win, they, it's not that they won't stay up, I just don't think they really can. I just think they've left themselves too much to do. <laughs> I thought you were at least going to say, I don't think they really will. They've got 13 points from 26 games. Fine, let's put that behind us. So they've got 18 games left. There's 44 games uh, in this League One season. I don't think anyone... And they've got 12 points between themselves and safety. I don't think anyone can have a go at you for saying that you don't think Southend are going to stay up. That's I, good, because I don't like people having a go at I, me. I, I would very much agree with you that it's very, very unlikely. Um, if anyone out there wants to put their, kind of nail their opinion um, to us and tell us right now they think that Sol Campbell, Southend are going to stay up, please do get in touch so that we can um, just... Interested to hear reasons why. But no, a, a massive result for them, a good performance... And Last week they got their first clean sheet just, in about twenty, yeah. and then today their first. But win. I mean, there have been signs that this was going to happen. The improvement of performances has been pretty clear. Um, you know, immediately Sol Campbell made them look a much better prospect going forward. They've now shored it up at the back a bit as well, Hope, hoping that any kind of financial issues there aren't um, too severe. Because I really, I'd really like to see Sol Campbell managing a team in South End next season who are financially stable and have the budget to build a squad capable of mounting a promotion challenge so we can actually see what Sol Campbell's all about because all the signs so far um, at clubs where he's really been up against it are, are positive. Absolutely. Talking about managers who began their career in management with basket case clubs, Michael Appleton of Lincoln, who you've always been very frustrated because he did such a wonderful job with your club, Oxford, in his last senior managerial job um, but people always look at his Wikipedia page and see the jobs at Blackpool, Blackburn and Portsmouth at very difficult times for all three clubs uh, and and 
in your eyes at least, start to judge him uh, a little harshly based on that. But starting to make his move, starting to stamp a bit of apples on this Lincoln City side, um, five home wins in a row is going to be getting the Sinsel Bank faithful very excited. Sadly, it's just one win in 14 away games for them uh, in the league. So there's clear ways to improve. But what we're seeing more than just results, because I think they're pretty secondary at the moment with Lincoln almost certainly not joining the promotion picture, but certainly not being relegated, uh, is that some of the recruitment we've seen has looked very Michael Appleton. Uh, the signings essentially of Max Melbourne, of Connor Coventry, of Tyrese John-Jules and Teo Eden as well already in January are starting to see what you experienced when you were uh, enjoying his tenure at Oxford. Uh, a move towards younger players, a move to for, towards developing young talent um, and, and all that comes with that. Tyrese John-Jules is on loan from Arsenal. He's played for every England youth team from under 16 to under 19. He scored eight in eight for the under-18s. So we're looking at, at youth level, a prolific top-level goal scorer. Uh, and he scored his first senior goal in only his second senior match. A very confident finish uh, after a pass from Tyler Walker. Uh, and just lessening the load on Walker, who is the league's second top scorer, will be very welcome. And uh, and this Lincoln side, I think we're, we're looking forward to seeing more of. Uh, go on. Yeah, yeah, no, you just reminded me about some guy who gave me... Um, Here we go. Who, who gave me uh, on Twitter, he said that Appleton was a terrible manager when he got appointed. And I remember that about two months ago, he sent me a gif of Jose Mourinho cupping his ear to the crowd. So I've just sent him one of a confused baby because you reminded me that happened. So There's nothing like talking us through your tweets to get the listeners overexcited <laughs> during this podcast. Last but not least, we talked about Southend's potential to stay up. Uh, well, it's going to be made harder if AFC Wimbledon keep doing things like winning football matches. Uh, not helpful for their relegation rivals, but very welcome for the Dons fans. This one was a win against beleaguered Peterborough, uh, a 1-0 win. And they were very good for their lead, Wimbledon. They've got a good home record uh, and they were very good for their lead. They then rode their luck to quite a large extent. Uh, Peterborough missing chance after chance in the second half. It's probably a good time to shout out Nathan Trott. He's Wimbledon's goalkeeper on loan from West Ham. And all the advanced statistics that I saw uh, from Opta the other day, basically showing that based on the shots that he's received uh, and the, the quality of the shots that he's received, he is the best goalkeeper in the division in terms of the saves that he's made and the, the essentially the expected goals that he has not conceded. Um, and all very impressive stuff. You might remember that last year they got Aaron Ramsdale on loan from Bournemouth and he helped them to stay up. Well, Nathan Trott on loan from West Ham. Looks like he might do a similar thing. League two now, George. I think we should start with Stevenage beating Cambridge 4-0. Because generally we'd start at the top here. Um, but I think it's only fair that a Stevenage team that we have denounced somewhat get a bit of a shout out here. Uh, <laughs> you certainly didn't see this coming. Uh, no, I um, this this result cost me financially it's fair to say I couldn't really believe my eyes when I saw the uh, the goals flying in um, huge credit to Stevenage I mean the the signing of of Jake Cassidy is just the most uh, Graham Westley thing you could really ever see the only bizarre thing about it is that he from what I can tell he'd never played under under Westley before just a, a quick a quick rundown of Jake Cassidy who scored the second goal his career he was at Wolves um, as a youth team player, left in 2015 after a host of loans. 
in 2016 he went to Geisley, 2017 to Hartlepool, then on loan to Maidstone and this season he's been at Maidenhead United and um, age 26 Graham Wesley has swooped to sign Maidenhead United's Jake Cassidy and he scored a header on debut. Uh, absolutely bizarre um, for for for, uh, for Wesley to pluck him out of obscurity, but visionary. Wesley knows exactly what he wants from his players. He knows exactly what Cassidy will provide him, even if other managers and the history tells them that Cassidy isn't a League Two player. For Wesley, he clearly is. Uh, the performance itself, I would say, came out of nowhere because the, the performances haven't been particularly good um, in the last five or so games. I think they'd drawn 2 0 nil and lost the other three. Can I give you some stats? Yes. Ah, stats are great, aren't they? Stats are great when they are good stats. Before this game, Stevenage had scored five goals in their previous 14 league games. Across the whole season, they had only found the net in 11 of 27 league games. So 16 of their games, they had failed to score. 11 of their games, they had actually scored a goal. But one morsel of encouragement throughout the season has been that defensively they're actually pretty good uh, only three teams uh, sorry only two teams have kept more clean sheets than them in the whole of league two which for a team right at the bottom of the table with so few points is is unusual so you know we're starting to see with it you know four nil is quite extreme but if Stevenage can continue defensively as they have done uh, in which they've basically conceded the the fewest goals of any team in the bottom half bar Macclesfield by some way if Wesley can somehow coax any sort of you know it doesn't need to be elite just mid-table attack out of this squad then uh, then they're going to move away from the relegation zone pretty happily uh, their relegation rivals Morecambe lost 4-1 at Northampton and really all the all the reaction from both in fairness Northampton's fans and Morecambe's fans were Morecambe played pretty well and and certainly to start the game matched Northampton were, were playing good football and creating chances. Uh, Northampton's first goal was a cross that went all the way in and they scored a couple more absolute crackers. But, uh, you know, if we're praising Stevenage, you'd expect us to be worried for Morecambe. But I will just note that a lot of the Morecambe rhetoric around this game has been quite positive. That, that The way that they've played, the manner that they've been playing under Derek Adams since he took charge is actually quite exciting for them and, and, and leads them to be quite excited for the next few games. Um some incredible goals as well in League Two this week. Mm. Callum Harriet for Colchester. Yes. From way downtown, as they'd say, across the pond. And Wes McDonald of Walsall. That was an unbelievable goal. Maybe the goal of the season in League Two so far. Yeah, I would, and especially because the circumstances being an 88-minute winner. Um, I was going to ask you about the Colchester. I think it was the second goal. Well, Ooh, I can't, I can't work Poku out. Poku did a well, really nice bit of skill. What did he do? Because either he's... It's like a classic sort of dummy shot shift go go down to the I mean, right he, side. If that is what he's done, then he's fooled me from my sofa watching the highlights because... If you watch Kwame Poku clips, <laughs> you will become a believer. Because it looked to me on first viewing as if he had really styled out an air, and like a, a genuine air, air kick. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, he's so skillful that you don't even believe what he's done. I still think he, he yeah. But I mean, unbelievable bit of skill because it completely sold the, the fullback and they scored the goal. Um, it feels like a big win for Warsaw that. Uh, again, another side. Obviously, a weekend of being one nil down and winning two one, um, which is uh, luckily Gillingham didn't put it off. But um, yeah, a big result that for Walsall. Again, uh, a team who you know, if, if we're starting to to kind of cast our eye towards next season, um, I think that Walsall, who are currently 
uh, eight points off the playoff spots um, are a team who this season's probably going to be a little a little bit out of their grasp, out of their reach, but a team that I'm looking forward to seeing what Daryl Clark does with them over the summer. And again, I, I tell you so often how sometimes I look at tables and I just, you know, things take me, take me by surprise. When did Cheltenham drop to seventh? Well, it's all very bunched, it's isn't it? It's tight, I know. But they were, I just... they, there were five teams on 44 points before the weekend. And now they're... And they yeah. lost a, a big game to Crew, who were also on 44. And on 47, let, let's touch on that group of teams. Uh, all very bunched up, of course. At the top, though, you have got Swindon first in the table. They've got 53 points from 28 games. Exeter City also on 53 points from 27 games. So top of the points per game table, which is the real quiz... Uh, Exeter City and George they beat Grimsby 1-0 unlike the Stevenage win you did see this one coming this was your best bet of the weekend on the betting show so good news for both of us there um, same story for them really a game that Matt Taylor himself said afterwards was very tight where they came up against a lot of pressure but they come out of it with a clean sheet which makes it 14 out of 27 games more than one in two clean sheets for Exeter this season uh, and two more clean sheets than anyone else in the EFL. And something else that we've seen plenty this season is Nicky Law providing a bit of quality to make the difference. Uh, Law 1-0. I think if I was an Exeter fan, I'd get that tattooed in my arm somewhere. Yeah, six-point gap now between themselves and fourth. They're certainly going to be part of the conversation from now on until May, aren't they? I mean, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it would be... Given the way they operate, um, it would be, uh, having said that, I was going to say it'd be bizarre to see them fall away massively. I've said before that you can't see how Exeter are going to drop too many points because they're so tight and then they went on, went on a, a little run where they conceded about a million goals in two games before shoring it up again. So um, got to be careful not to give them, um, you know, not to promote them already. But uh, yeah, I mean, what Matt Taylor doing there is, is, is so impressive. Uh, the shot locations from Saturday's game also really really strong they had 15 shots in the game only three of them were outside the area and um, which shows you the you know they're they're not just getting in good positions but they're getting their shots off well and um and they're very very solid at the back uh, randall williams getting back to the kind of form that we saw him in about about six weeks ago when he was very exciting indeed he got the assist for law and uh, is a player who exeter are looking likely to keep in january which is impressive because i'm sure if they do go up this season he'll play a massive part in the next couple of months a good day for Devon football fans was a quote that you yourself said on Five Live after the games. Uh, and that's because it wasn't just Exeter who went level on points with Swindon, but also Plymouth Argyle, a real flavour of the month for me at the moment. They got a big win uh, against Mansfield. And it was a big win, I suppose, because, I mean, they really rode their luck. The first half, I watched this one, Mansfield were all over them for the first 20 minutes and had two or three great openings uh, and for Plymouth to sort of wrestle back control and to, to end with a 3-2 win uh, hugely, hugely impressive I think that they are the, the relative to their division the best team in the EFL at the moment, uh, I've spoken about this a fair bit on the betting show um, of course you can pick and choose when you, when you do your custom league tables from um, but we know that they were quite slow to get going this year, just 12 points from their first 10 games uh, but since then it's been an absolute procession of Plymouth wins flying up the table towards the top end of the table uh, and I can see them continuing with this uh, with this momentum uh, as we uh, as we get towards the business end of the season if you take uh, their last 16 games they've got 35 points it's better than two points per game 
in in the same time period from it's basically four months time Swindon have played two games more and got two points fewer uh, Northampton and Exeter have got four points fewer and played one game more so they're really purring Plymouth um, Backinson has started really well since joining on loan from Bristol City quality player that we that we knew that already from his time at Newport last season um, and I and I think an interesting point to make is that Danny Mayer is not having the same impact on this Plymouth team as he did on promotions Berry last season. Um, we do judge him to very high standards because when he's at his best, he's far too good for the level. But he does seem to be a bit quieter for Plymouth and potentially that's because there's slightly less responsibility on him um, to, to, to move forward. And that's that can be quite good for a team, I suppose. Did you enjoy Newport beating Swindon? No comment. Did you enjoy the second goal, which was one of the great goal mass scrambles of the season? It was absolutely horrible, yeah. It was, it was it kind of matched the pitch, I would say. There was a rugby match on that pitch on Friday night before a Saturday 3pm game. That seems suboptimal, doesn't it? Yeah, to say the least. But it was good with Newport to kind of buy into the spirit and, and use a scrum to get the ball over the line for, for Jamil <laughs> Matt's second. But... Swindon, I shouldn't laugh, but Swindon, it was just unfortunate timing. Uh, I was checking my Twitter at about one minute past three, and I noticed that the Swindon Twitter account, obviously in reference to the pitch, had said, doesn't matter whether it's pretty or not, up the town, just as kickoff happened. And then the next tweet, one minute later, one minute, goal, Newport opened the scoring. Uh, that was that was unfortunate, and they didn't get back into it. So Newport have done the double over Swindon this season, which uh, which I don't imagine any other team will do. Interesting, interesting to note that you know normally when a team goes one 0 up, especially when they're the, the underdog in the game, you'd probably expect sustained pressure um, from the other team. But if you look ahead, so Newport went one 0 up, and I think that the shot count kind of just after half time, after about fifty minutes, was eight two to Newport, and it was only kind of towards the end of the of the second half that Swindon got a foothold in the game. So um, if you're looking for teams to maybe kind of follow um, out of this weekend, definite signs of life. I mean, we, you can't get too downbeat about Swindon. They've put in enough good performances uh, in the last kind of few months to know that they are a top-class league, league two team and they'll return to that with or without Doyle. Um, but signs of life from Newport, who um, have obviously undergone a really, really shocking run of form. Um, and have won back-to-back games now and it would be no shock to see Mike Flynn getting them on the kind of run that, that saw them get into the playoff final last season. Finally, Crew and Cheltenham started the weekend on 44 points locked together uh, and at Gresty Road, Cheltenham had big chances in the first half. They were they were sitting back, they were letting Crew have the ball but they did strike on the counter two big, big opportunities, one for May, one for Adai and they didn't take them and crew grew back into the game, took control of it in the second half. And one of our favourite players, Perry NG, the right back, cutting in and firing in a low shot from 25 yards or so with his left foot uh, to win that game. That's quite a significant result uh, that crew will rightly be very happy with. It's also their first clean sheet in a long time, um, which I'm not going to give them too much credit for, given that Cheltenham did miss two glaring opportunities. So not too much in that one. Don't expect or don't be surprised if Cheltenham get back involved. Don't expect to see crew drop the odd point here and there. The league is fascinating at the moment in League Two. Uh, and uh, we hope that you're enjoying listening to us dissect this stuff every Monday. Uh, and also, additionally, we're going to be previewing more things on our new show, the Going Up, Going Down podcast, 
which is going to be hosted by The Athletic, going to be brought to you by The Athletic. We're so excited to be given our own show uh, on favourite website where all of the best football writers are housed and now many, many great podcasts as well. So please stay tuned on Thursday. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Going Up, Going Down podcast on whichever pod platform you use. And please do give us some feedback on the first show. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like so much. We will also be releasing a betting show as always towards the end of the week. And uh, we hope that you'll give that a listen as always as well. Really appreciate your support. The next part is Kieran Maguire talking about the situation with Derby, Sheffield Wednesday and Birmingham with regards to potential sanctions. Kieran, it's it's a real pleasure to have you back on the Not The Top 20 podcast. 18 months ago, we sat down for a special bonus podcast in summer of, of 2018. feels like a lot has happened since then uh, in terms of the world of football finance and with regard to the EFL. Uh, and also not least uh, that at that stage, you were a website and you were a Twitter account, but you're also now a podcast and most recently uh, a new book fresh out the oven a busy man uh, yes it has been uh, a busy year which is which is both good and bad uh, if, if it were not for the likes of Steve Dale and Ken Anderson and, and the owner of one club which I will not refer to who who sued me for defamation last year uh, my life would be fairly quiet um, the uh, but the podcast was uh, a suggestion from somebody at uh, BBC Five Live, one of their business producers, one of their business editors, uh, Guy Kilty. Um, and then I, I managed to persuade Kevin to come on board. And Kevin's brilliant. He's very, very professional. He, he, he is the man in the pub asking the questions, mm. which is what we were looking for. Um, How and, many episodes the, have you done now? It's, it's absolutely it's flying off the shelves in the podcast world. It's doing, yeah. I think it's doing okay. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not very good on his, for, for numbers person. I'm absolutely hopeless on numbers. But I think we're we're getting around about thirteen thousand downloads a week. I, I've got no idea where that is in terms of podcast popularity, but we we seem to be getting good feedback. Um, and who persuaded you to sit down and and write it all down and uh, and create a book? Because from what I've heard about the process, it is uh, lengthy and arduous. Yeah, I mean that the book took two and a half years mainly research work mm. uh sort of doing the background work um i i was on the uh, bbc one sofa uh, just minding my own business talking about I, th I think it was a new tv deal for the premier league and uh, a guy from a publishing house uh, i think i think he liked the fact that i don't tend to use very long words and, mm. and i do try to just talk like I'm talking to my mates in the pub. And here I've got the advantage. I mean, I, I work with very learned professors. Um, I, I'm not that smart. So therefore, I've got to talk in language which I can understand. And if I can understand it, hopefully viewers and listeners and, and in t you know, ideally readers of the book, should anybody <laughs> choose to read it, uh, will we'll find it that it's... Uh, it's football finance for non-finance people is, is the way I would describe it. Brilliant. And and it is also called Price of Football. You really have managed to keep that uh, that brand, if you will. I'm sure you cringe at the word, but you have managed to keep that all in line, isn't it? So the podcast and the book, both Price of Football. Um, I, was, I was hoping to pick your brains about Derby County 
and the current goings-on between that club and the EFL, really just to shed some light uh, for, for my own benefit, but also for the benefit of our own audience. Um, we know from last week that the EFL has charged Derby for, in their words, uh, recording losses in excess of the permitted amounts provided for in EFL regulations for the three-year period ending 30th of June 2018. Now, we also know, uh, we learned this from you uh, a few years ago, that a championship club is not permitted to lose more than 39 million quid in three years, essentially. But it's not as simple as Derby are over that limit uh, because it's the stadium Pride Park that's really at the heart of all of this. That's right. In 2016, the EFL changed the rules. Um, and in 2016, they, they allowed clubs to... Um, sell assets which would generate a profit which could count towards your FFP loss of 39 million. Now, prior to that, you weren't allowed to do it. So nobody knows why the rules were changed. And, and, And nobody at the EFL is prepared to give an explanation either. But some really smart people at clubs said, well, what's the one thing that we could sell which would generate a huge profit um, potentially? And that would be the, the club stadium. So Therefore, uh, we have had a series of clubs, uh, Reading, Birmingham, Sheffield Wednesday, Derby and Aston Villa, all in the championship who have sold their their stadia, but they've actually sold them to themselves. They've sold them to companies controlled by the club owner. Mm. Um, And again, in theory, that that is fine. Um, But the other thing that it says in the EFL, EFL rules is that if you do sell an asset, you've got to record it at a fair market price. Mm. And this is the crux of the matter. Nobody knows, and and I'm not as chartered as they are, I'm not qualified to say, nobody knows what a football stadium is worth. But normally, you would say that if you or I were buying and selling a house, let's say I was selling a house to you, I'd try to get as high a price as possible, and you should try to get as low a price as possible, and then we meet somewhere in the middle. (laughs) If I'm selling something to myself... That dynamic doesn't exist, does it? No. So if, if I wanted to record a profit, um, I'm, I'm presently holding a pencil in my hand. Um, that pencil cost me 50 pence from WH Smith. There's nothing to stop me from selling it to myself for a million pounds, <laughs> provided I've got a million pounds in a bank account. Yes. Okay. Understood. Okay. And this is what's happened with the EFL stadium issue. We've got people who have wealth, which is beyond our comprehension, doing just that. So we then get a range of prices. So if you take a look to see what has happened, Birmingham City sold their stadium for 24 million. Reading sold theirs for 26. Mm-hmm. Those are quite close. We then go to Aston Villa. Villa Park was sold for 57. Now, that's quite a step up. You could say that, okay, Villa Park's a wee bit bigger, so there's a case. We then go to Hillsborough. Hillsborough was sold for 60. And I'm thinking, well, Hillsborough doesn't seem any bigger or or newer or smarter than Villa Park. So that seems a little bit strange. Mm. And then we come to Derby County, and they sold theirs for about 80. Right. And now we're going, well, hold on. This... This to a layman, and this is what you and I are, Ali. How can Derby County, with a capacity of what's it about thirty-two, thirty-three thousand, um, how can that be worth three times the value of the Majeski? Because they're both 
relatively new stadia. They've both got broadly the same um, capacity. Can, can, so, is there any chance that it's anything to do with the land that it's on or, or and the size of the land around that? Or, or am I just sort of trying to play devil's advocate and thinking of well, some reason behind this? That, that, that could be. But then if, if we take a look at, at where they, they are built... Um, the home counties, and, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a surveyor. I, I'm not a land expert. The home counties, and and the area in that sort of that just outside the M25 circle, mm. um, that's worth more in terms of land than than the East Midlands. Yeah. yeah so, um, you know, what what has what has Derby County got that the Majeski hasn't? Well, the, the only thing I can see is it's got a it's got a Frankie and Benny's next door. Um, which, okay, that that might appeal to some. They've got a very broad menu in there, which I, which I like. But I mean, the quality is 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 potentially questionable. Um, so so it's down to the difference in in valuation. Uh, and the EFL have decided that they believe it to be so large as to as as to be punishable, I suppose. But but it also comes back to I, what I wanted to know is without the sale of the stadium if this hadn't happened at all if the rule was still in place that you could not do this and it couldn't be sold as an asset yep. where would derby by your calculations have fallen over this 39 million pound threshold over 3 years how how much what what size gap did they need to yep. make up okay um i i did my calculations and you you do have to it is, it's always it's it's as much art as science, Ali, in, in the sense that if you spend money on your academy, if you spend money on um, infrastructure, if you spend money on community schemes, then those costs don't count towards FFP. But speaking to people in the game, I've got a rough idea of how much those costs roughly are. Mm-hmm. So if we take those into consideration and we knock those off the, the Derby County figures, I think we're looking broadly at a loss of around about 53 to 54 million. That's that's uh f- that's approximately 14 million pounds over the over the the threshold. That's right. Um, and these are just to stress again uh, calculations rather than common knowledge at this stage because uh, the the yeah. accounts are, are yet to be made public. Yes. Um and and also th- there is there is certain information in accounts that you don't ever get to see. So if if that puts Derby County at 14 million pounds above the 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 threshold limit then that would trigger an 11 point penalty. Right, okay. Um so so that's that's the first thing. And if you if you read the the Birmingham City Tribunal report and, and being being a glorified train spotter, I've read every page, every sentence of it. What what you do see is that there's there's a sliding scale of tariffs for um, the extent of your losses. Mm. So it's looking that that Derby broadly are around about in the eleven points area, and, and then on top of that, there are what the tribunal call mitigating and aggravating factors so a mitigating factor birmingham had one point deducted from their points deduction because they went to the efl and they held up their hand mm. and they said we we think we've done something wrong yeah they so, said we, so, we, we had harry redknapp as manager for a, a period of time in which we spent a lot of money on players and they didn't necessarily hold the v- same value uh six or six or twelve months later 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that they they effectively shop themselves. Right. Which which you know sometimes you you, you know I, let, let's say that I. But it's always, I, it was I, it would have come out anyway that you know they they. It, it would have come out, but it, it's a bit like if you go to a if you are in court. I don't know whether you've ever been on a jury service, but I've been in court, and when people pleaded guilty, they actually ended up with a lower tariff from yeah. the judge because it's an acknowledgement of guilt sure um so so birmingham had one point deducted for what we refer to as these mitigating factors and then on the other side of this we have something which is called aggravating factors this is you have annoyed the efl commission you have deliberately tried to pull the wool over the eyes you have been aggressive in the way that you've dealt with your case and therefore we are going to uh, give you an additional penalty and you can have up to a further nine points deducted right should that be the case so this now, is where it, the headline makers have plucked 20 21 point potential deductions from that's right so you'd, you'd have to be on a very very naughty step to get those additional nine points um so uh, and and that will be decided in due course by a tribunal and the way that the tribunal operates is that the efl nominate one person the club nominates one person and then there is one independent uh, member of of the panel okay so and, and so, so, there's, the so there's one independent member of a panel who will have the final say essentially here that that is who will decide what will happen in reality with regards to a point deduction or I suppose it, it, if it all went well for Derby, uh, it, this would be thrown out or or, or something similar. Yes, and and, and Derby's uh, Derby's argument is that as far as they they were concerned, they submitted their 2018 accounts to the EFL. Um, we are now in January 2020, so we're, so it's uh, the EFL have had a year or so, more than a year to review the accounts. Given that, therefore, the EFL effectively accepted Derby's version of events. So why on earth is the EFL now litigating, now charging Derby um, with a breach of the rules? Derby's own statement used the word unlawful. Well, um, the, the rules of the EFL are those of a member's club. So whilst they do not... Um, overrule the the national rule of law, they they do carry a lot of weight for what is an internal issue, and the internal issue is have you broken the regulations of the EFL itself? So uh, the the lawyers here will be making hay, and and the reason why it took around about seven months for the Birmingham City uh, case to be resolved was because. Uh, lawyers and accountants were sending each other emails and faxes and God knows what else on a regular basis saying, well, you've not thought of this, you've not thought of that. And all, all the time, of course, these, these guys are running up the clock. Uh, the, you know, the costs of, of Birmingham City were significant. I mean, the costs of the QPR judgment, uh, the EFL's costs alone were three million pounds. So mm. it, it's money which is leaching out of the game. But I suppose also um, from a Derby perspective, the well i don't know if this is if this is true but from a sporting perspective and the potential for a points deduction uh, the longer it takes the the better in a way if if they could get to a point where the season had finished that this 
2019-2020 season had finished, they would potentially avoid having the points deducted for this campaign, which, you know, depending on how many points it is, could could result in a relegation or, or, or at least a relegation battle. Yes, uh, and, and I think if, if that is the case, and the EFL don't want that, yeah, I, I have that on good authority. The EFL don't want that because this could result in another club being relegated who will then potentially launch a lawsuit against the EFL to say, if you'd if you'd make, made the judgment a month earlier, Derby would have been relegated instead of us. Mm. Equally, Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday could get into the playoffs and get promoted and then the EFL make a judgment and say, well, we think you should have a points deduction. Now, EFL rules don't count in the Premier League. So Sheffield Wednesday could go up and it could, mm. it could all get incredibly messy. How similar we... is that Sheffield Wednesday situation to what you've described to us here about Derby? There, there are um, sim- there's similarities in terms of the club have gone in very aggressively against the EFL since the charge. Um, I, I think there are a couple of things Um in Derby's favour, uh, although the price clearly isn't, um, is that if, if you if you go into the small print of Derby's accounts, you do see the £81 million being received. If you go into the Sheffield Wednesday accounts, what's very strange is that although they say that they've sold the ground in the year, they've only received an IOU from the buyer. Uh, now, again, if, if we go back to sort of the analogy we were using earlier, if I sold my house to you, I wouldn't give you the keys until you'd paid me. I wouldn't have said, as has been the case with Sheffield Wednesday, pay me over the next eight years. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite happy to go along with that. that clearly, that, that wouldn't work for me. So, so that seems to be uh, a bit strange. And the other thing which counts against Sheffield Wednesday was that, They've said the uh, they've said that Hillsborough was sold in 2018, but it was sold to a company which didn't exist until July 2019, which on the face of it does appear a bit odd. Right. So they've got some explaining to do as well uh, along similar lines. Can these uh, commissions happen concurrently? Can we can can they do them at the same time, or, or do you think we'll find out about Sheffield Wednesday? first and then they'll get into the the Derby County uh, commission there's not there's nothing in theory to stop them taking place simultaneously you, you could have them sitting in two different rooms because you know four of the people are, are going to be in independent diff, different anyway mm. um I, I think from the EFL's point of view they want to use Sheffield Wednesday as a test case because if their arguments fail against Sheffield Wednesday there's little benefit in then proceeding against Derby mm. County So I think Sheffield Wednesday will be very much the litmus test here um, in terms of the validity of uh, the the EFL's review of Sheffield Wednesday's uh, asset transfer. Right. So see if this is is in any way correct. Uh, A very layman explanation of the issue. You've explained the sale of the stadium. I think that that made a lot of sense the EFL's issue with that is they believe that Derby uh, inflated the price of their stadium in order to make a lot of money in order to stay under the FFP threshold and the Derby's argument is this was allowed in the EFL's rules and also you've had quite a long time 
sort of knowing about this and is there a suggestion that there's been a sort of change of tune uh, from from the EFL on this matter that they've hardened their stance? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, your, your summary is, is absolutely perfect. It, it is spot on. Um, the, so the sale of the stadium is fine. It's all to do with the valuation. In terms of what's happened at the EFL, there has been a major change. Um, the, the previous CEO of the EFL, Sean Harvey, who I think it's fair to say I am well known of not having huge amount of time for, um, as have are exactly the same boat as fans of, of Berry and, and some other clubs. Um, he seemed to have a, a light touch uh, regulation system. And uh, since the appointment of Rick Parry uh, to run the EFL, Rick's sort of a new, a new sheriff in town. Um, if anybody's ever been in the company of Rick, what you will realize, A, he's an incredibly smart bloke. So he's he used to be the chief executive of the Premier League. He's been the chief executive of Liverpool Football Club. And he's sat on um, the FFP committees of UEFA. So nobody knows more about the, the rules and the principles behind the rules than Rick. Um, he's also very, very big on integrity. Um and he will t- be taking a much more forensic approach, a much harder line than his predecessors. So, again, I think your assessment, what has changed in the EFL, I think the the nature of the EFL has changed under Rick Parry. He, he wants to apply the rules um, to a much greater extent than his predecessors. Okay, understood. I think you've I think you've cleared everything up certainly in my mind and I'm sure our very ed- well-educated and intelligent listenership will will have got there before me. One last quick question from me. Uh, there's also been some reports that Birmingham are also uh, in discussions, I suppose, or are in a bit are in a bit of hot water with the EFL, which is a little confusing as we saw them already receive a points deduction last season which you referred to earlier so is there a, a new issue and and how serious is it um yes there, there does appear to be a new issue which works as follows when when birmingham were given their nine points deduction um last season they were also effectively put in a, a form of what an ofsted inspector might do to a school in in the form of special measures in the sense of this is a budget to which you must comply you must adhere to the following targets in terms of cutting back on your expenditure under harry redknapp birmingham were paying out 202 pounds in wages for every 100 pounds they generated in income so they they were told very very firmly by the efl you've got to cut back that level of expenditure here's a target it's up to you to achieve that target what appears to be the the situation is that that birmingham have not achieved the demands that were put upon them by the efl and that could potentially trigger um, another investigation and another charge right i saw it suggested that uh, they were they, they were potentially being asked to uh, offload a lot of players and player costs last january uh, and uh, the Birmingham Mail reported that essentially if there was knowledge of that amongst other clubs, I'm not sure, but the offers that they were receiving for players, most notably Che Adams, who was their great asset at that time, uh, were sort of quite, in their eyes, 
much lower than their own valuation and they were maybe slightly loath to do so. Of course, they did then sell Adams for £16 million or so in the summer. So I wonder if it's possible that they might uh, explain those circumstances and and, uh, be let off. But it's, it's not another sort of major FFP conundrum it's 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 actually in relation to what they had already been punished for last season and and uh, so we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that story as well Kieran I really appreciate you giving up some of your uh, time to explain this stuff for us as always thank you so much anytime Ali great to talk again and the best of luck with the sales of the book and the continued success uh, of your podcast price of football